we uh, added uh, some yeast cell walls into the diets and after inoculation of the birds, maybe seven or eight days after that inoculation, we did observe a reduction of uh, probably two logarithms in Campylobacter colonization. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. Fumezyme from DSM Firminiche. You can combat fumonisins in your feed with Fumezyme from DSM Firminiche. Fumezyme is the only FDA-approved enzyme to degrade fumonisins. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Today, I'm here with Luis Munoz. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Dr. Bobic. My pleasure to be here. I, I'm super happy to chat with you today. Um, there's a few topics that I think everyone is of interest because it involves foodborne pathogens and whatnot that are, are related to poultry. But first, I want to hear, how did you get into poultry? So that's an interesting story. Uh, for my <laughs> undergrad, I did some work related with food science, uh, and I got a bachelor's in food science. But after I graduated uh, back home in Honduras, I was able to find a job in animal sciences. So I was like a technical rep in sales for a company that uh, produced and sold animal feed. So I was visiting a lot of clients, uh, dairy producers, beef producers, pork, and also some of the clients had chickens, like broilers and layers mostly was my experience down in Honduras. So after some years of doing that kind of work, I got immersed into the different uh, live animal production operations. And when I was thinking about what did I wanted to do uh, for my career, I honestly evaluated like uh, the different animal species. And honestly, poultry uh, seemed to be the fastest growing industry in my country, oh, yeah. also here in the States. So I figured if I was coming to get a degree and higher education in the field, I would want to have more opportunities. So that's how I uh, ended up deciding on, on poultry. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. <laughs> That's really smart and very calculated. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, I, it's good to pick a growing industry. <laughs> definitely, definitely. It took me uh, a couple of years to make the decision, but um, I would make it again if I had the opportunity to choose again. Good. Then you know you're in the right spot. <laughs> definitely. 
So can you tell us a little bit about the path to where you are right now? After you decided poultry, what did you do after that? So once I decided I wanted to study poultry, uh, I started like contacting uh, different professors. And particularly uh, here at Auburn, we had a professor that graduated from my same undergraduate school in Honduras, which is San Marano. So I reached out to Dr. Wilmer Pacheco and just told him my interest and what I wanted to do. And at the time, uh, he put me in contact with my current major professor, which is Dr. Ken Macklin. So once that we started talking, we both kind of like understood that uh, had similar interest in what we wanted to do. I had interested in what he was doing. So we started talking from there and uh, thank God the door opened and I was able to move up here to Auburn. That's awesome. Um, with graduate school, it, a lot of it is just timing. <laughs> it is it is timing, and I think that uh, you just got to be patient for the opportunity because there is a lot of people that actually want uh, to continue their degrees. So it's just a matter of uh, trying and, and doing it insistently yeah. if you want to achieve your objective. Yeah, yeah, persistence definitely pays off. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us um, a little bit about what you've been working on or you know, where your main interests lie as you pursue further education? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I first got to Auburn, I got my master's degree and it was in a different field of what uh, Dr. Macklin did in the lab. But mm -hmm. given my background that I used to work a lot with uh, animal feed, I was interested in knowing what was the bacterial contamination of mm -hmm. different uh, feed ingredients and also the animal feed in the production stage. So during my master's, I did like uh, feed mill surveys around the state of Alabama. So we visited the feed mills and we collected samples of ingredient receiving or the stored ingredients and also at different stages of the processing of the feed. And then with the samples, we brought them back to our lab and we were trying to find uh, the bacterial load for pathogens that are normally uh, important to humans that are transmitted through poultry. So we looked a lot uh, at um, Clostridium, Salmonella, and also E. coli. And that was um, some of what I did for my master's degree. Once that I uh, decided that I wanted to do a PhD, uh, we had the opportunity to uh, change a little bit the area where I was going to be doing my research. And for my PhD, I've been evaluating different intervention strategies that would be applied in the farm to successfully mm -hmm. reduce or prevent colonization of foodborne pathogens and more particularly in Campylobacter jejuni. Yeah. So um, with the transmission at the feed mill level, what were some of the main conclusions of the work that you did? Where, where is the hot spot? <laughs> yes. So uh, we, since we visited different uh, types of feed mill, we noticed that the feed mills that uh, used animal meals, it would be mm. poultry byproduct meal, for example, or fish meals or any other ingredients like that, they tended to have higher contamination. Uh, in our study, we did not detect any salmonella, but we detect consistently E. coli and Clostridium perfringens, 
along the feed. So I would say that uh, the ingredient source that you use really impacts like the pathogen load you're gonna have in the feed. And also we noticed that uh, pelleting process, it was successful in some cases in reducing these enterobacteria, but we also noticed that some feed mills that they didn't have the best hygiene practices in their operations, oh. that they would have a either a recontamination of the feed or the pelleting temperatures that they were using, they were not uh, successful in killing this bacteria. So uh, that's, that's something so interesting. Mm-hmm. So when someone brings in a contaminated feed to the mill, um, if what are the proper cleaning practices that should be applied all the time? But I guess what are the the main ones that would reduce the bacterial load if something happened to be positive? And then what? Or, or a better question is, is what are the practices that allow re- recontamination? What are people doing wrong? <laughs> well, I think I will start answering like the first part of the question you answer, because I think that it's very complicated just to deal yeah. with that <laughs> great amount of volume of grain and ingredients that you receive. So uh, given the nature that all these ingredients are coming from the field, you are likely going to have these bacteria. So I yeah. think that the proper way to address it is just having good hygiene at the feed mill. And having in proper like places of rodent control or uh, pest control, so you don't get like those hot spots. So uh, routinely cleaning and disinfection of the equipment uh, once a week, I think that would be efficient. Um, once that the feed is uh, produced, if it's contaminated, um, I think that there are some strategies that you can do, like to add to the feed certain products that would decontaminate it, and uh, that's something that uh, I know that industry is doing to reduce this bacterial load. Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, the animal meals are, or the fish meals seem to be the main, the main source of contamination. Is that something that you would say is consistent outside of where you are too? Um, Or do you think, do you think that the temperatures where you are kind of help those bacteria persist? You know, do, do the cooler temperatures for feed mills north of you um, play any role, you know, basically in having more or less contamination as the seasonality goes on? Yeah, I I would assume so. We did our study in uh, both uh, weather temperatures that we get here in Alabama, not necessarily as a cold winter (laughs) as y'all get up over there, but uh, we did in the summer and also in the winter. And and there was some variation. And I would think that uh, the more like north you go, you are going to see uh, different kind of problems, especially I think that you might see more contamination during the um, cooling process because you might get more condensation in some places compared oh, to others, sure. uh, given the uh, temperature differential. But um, it definitely is something that needs to be seen regionally, I think. Yeah. Huh. But uh, yeah, in terms really of in terms of the ingredients, going back to that part of the question, I also think that uh, yes, fish meal was one of them. But uh, from what what I can recall right now, I think that uh, peanut meal as well uh, was a uh, contaminated ingredient. So uh, it's just given the nature of like peanuts grow in the soil, and then soil is heavily yeah. like contaminated with this type of bacteria. Yeah. Huh. Gosh, the meals or the further processed products sound sound like they could be um, more risky. <laughs> yes, yes. We didn't see as much contamination in, in DDGS, for example, or uh, yeah. uh, even in soybean meal, in corn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so the intervention strategies, at least at the feed mill, involve cleaning and rodent control are kind of the big ideas. So um, could you tell us a little bit about the intervention strategies that you could apply to the finished feed or maybe in the feed as a preventative? Are, are there, what kind of products are helpful for these different pathogens? I know that uh, sometimes formaldehyde uh, might be added into the feed, just like at low doses to kill these bacteria. And that's been shown effective. Is that, is that common across um, feed mills or does that, is that require, I'm sure there's a cost associated with it and some special handling, but is it common? Is it a common practice? I really don't know. I, from, <laughs> yeah. from, from what I saw, it is common, but uh, I just had like limited perspective like here from the state. Yeah. So I wouldn't be able to speak like for the whole <laughs> population of feed mills. Yeah, yeah. So what are some of the other things that you're working on right now in terms of salmonella and campylobacter control? Are they the same for both of those pathogens um, or are they different or what, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, so for salmonella, uh, we are doing a um, more of a comprehensive study to understand where is salmonella getting in to the poultry continuum. So uh, I'm part of projects where we go to burner complexes and sample uh, the pullets, the breeders, incubators, burner farms. And even we go to the processing part to understand where is the salmonella actually getting into the poultry chain. And in terms of intervention strategies, I've been more familiarized with work in Campylobacter, which uh, we have been evaluating uh, yeast cell wall products added into the diet, and also organic acids added into the water to understand if they're able to reduce the colonization of Campylobacter in the live birds, mostly. Oh, yeah. So when, when you look at those two different pathogens, um, they, they're commensal, you know, the bird doesn't really much care, but the human, <laughs> the human definitely cares. So um, from a food safety aspect, what are, I guess, what are the important reasons to control it at all of those different stages of the chain? Have you realized that most of the contamination is coming from one of those places or is it really several different steps? So it is very tricky, I would say, because uh, these bacteria can get in the chain at any given point. So they're bacteria that they are normally ubiquitous to the poultry environment. And as you mentioned, they're commensal bacteria that do not harm the bird. So I think that for Salmonella, what we have learned and have seen in this project that I was talking about is that a lot of the contamination occurs at the hatchery. And we do see it in the broiler farms and then, of course, in the processing plant. But uh, previous to the hatchery point, uh, we haven't observed as much. And with Campylobacter, it's just very tricky because um, it is believed that vertical transmission does not occur. But um, I think that once that the bacteria is in the farm, all the birds get contaminated. So it's very common that um, in Campylobacter, you don't see an in-between. So uh, I think that any step of the chain can be like the, the point where these bacteria are getting. But yeah. I think that the biggest difference is that the behavior with salmonella, for example, you can have prevalence of salmonella in the live birds, 
that are going to be a good estimator for you to predict what are going to be the prevalence level of salmonella at the processing plants. And with Campylobacter, it's different because uh, there is no in-between. So uh, you might have a low prevalence at the flock levels, but uh, you see high prevalence in the in the processing. And I think that all, all that has to do with the uh, resistance that uh, apparently Campylobacter has to the different interventions that we as industry have. Mm. So, so what are some of the common interventions specifically for salmonella right now that are being used or are in development? Okay, so uh, you know that the government is very interested in having like uh, uh, chicken free of salmonella. So these interventions, and I think that this year uh, they came up with a different uh, plan of how to address it. So. Uh, before, we were looking at interventions at the processing plant to decrease salmonella prevalence and loads in the poultry meat. But now the um, approach is to view it like a farm-to-fork model. So you have to have interventions now in in production and as well during transportation and also mm-hmm. at the processing. So I think that um, adding, starting from the feed, it needs to be addressed because any route where someone can get in into the farm needs to be uh, taken care of. So you would say adding uh, products that would inhibit growth of salmonella in feed, you would say uh, cleaning properly the water lines to remove any biofilm that might be surviving that uh, can help to spread salmonella within the birds, uh, maximizing hygiene and biosecurity at the farms. And all of these uh, interventions added up are the ones that I I seem like and I read that are the ones mostly used. Mm-hmm. Do you have an idea of by the time the birds go to the actual the slaughter facility itself, how many are actually contaminated, and then how many carcasses you know get contaminated just because of maybe a few? Like, do you have an idea of the pre- the prevalence overall, like at the farm, and then versus what happens at slaughter? Yes, I think it depends. Um, I was reading a a paper, and they were comparing uh, the differences between uh, the prevalence of salmonella in the farm and the prevalence of salmonella at the processing plant, and doing the yeah. same thing with campi. And they were observing that uh, salmonella, uh, for example when you have it in high levels of the farm, you'd say a prevalence of 90%. You pretty much observe the same prevalence, 95% at processing stages. But with Campylobacter, it was a little bit different because uh, in some uh, situations, you detected less Campylobacter at the farm. You'd say like a 60%, 67%. And then when you were at processing stages, you would detect like an 88, 89%. So it was not like... Oh kind of like a, a good estimator. But uh, in general, I think that uh, once that you start in the processing facility, you receive birds and you have a, a contamination, you'd say of 60, 80% uh, of salmonella in the birds. As you go into the different processes uh, in the poultry plant before or after chilling, you see like a significant decrease where uh, you can even reduce like salmonella to uh, numbers closer to zero. And then if yeah. you start in the contamination levels around the 60-ish percent for Campylobacter, you don't end at that level. You 
uh, you're lucky you end like around the 40% contamination after chilling. So it, it seems like Campylobacter is a little bit more um, hard to kill with yeah. uh, with the parasitic acids. And, uh, mm-hmm. is, does it have um, a resistance? Is, do you think that's why like the, the agents that we use for intervention are not useful or are they the wrong agents? <laughs> That's a good question, and I really don't know, and I think that that is something that we need to look more into because there is not much information uh, up to date, like of Campylobacter, as there is with Salmonella. So it yeah. could be a, it could be just like a mechanism that uh, the bacteria has, uh, or it could be the wrong products that we're we're yeah. using in the not in the proper stage. Yeah. So. So, so as you're moving through a slaughter facility. It's so automated, you know, the birds are on these shackles and they're, they're going through. So when they get to that chilling process, does the method of chilling matter? I mean, does it, does the air chilling versus the water bath, are there different amounts of salmonella mitigation? Because I, I guess I just think air chilling is much different than putting the carcasses like in a bath of water where maybe an agent could be applied. So are, are there differences based on the method of cooling the carcass with salmonella incidents? I have not been involved with uh, that type of research particularly, yeah. but uh, I would assume because uh, you are keeping, um, oh, I'm sorry about the light. Oh, I don't know what happened. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna try that one again. I'm, I think that there is a, a difference between uh, both uh, cooling systems. I I think that when you do immerse chilling, you have water that is treated with antimicrobials that will reduce more uh, the bacterial load. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. And then can they get recontaminated after that? <laughs> yes, definitely at any point. And I think that... Uh, I think that um, what happened is that the meat that is further processed has more chance of um yeah getting contaminated yeah huh sounds like an uphill battle some days <laughs> I, I think it's something hard to control yeah but yeah. Uh, definitely as as an industry we need to deal with it and and try to find the solutions to produce safe safe meat gosh yeah yeah so um so there are some chemical strategies, like you mentioned, the low percentage of formaldehyde, and maybe even there are some temperature strategies with heating or cooling, or you know the feed gets processed and there's steam, or the carcass gets cooled and then there's antimicrobials in there. But are there, um, for the, the production systems or the marketing strategies that don't allow antibiotics, are there non-antibiotic strategies for mitigation? Um, that are successful or are they still kind of being developed? I think that uh, that is something that we still do a lot of research on, but there are certain products that have uh, shown that they are able to reduce the contamination of animals with uh, salmonella particularly. And I know like uh, mananogosaccharides, for example, Ah. uh, when you add them into the diets, they're able to bind any salmonella that might be in the environment. And that translates into a prevention of colonization of the bird. So um, there are some studies that show, and I actually know that in layer industry, some 
supermarket chains actually require uh, their producers, their table egg producers, to add uh, these man and oligosaccharides into the diets because they reduce the colonization of salmonella and therefore uh, they produce cleaner eggs. So yeah. I think that that's something. And there's a lot of research that uh, has shown that at least in vitro, there is a uh, potential for organic acids to prevent uh, or yeah, prevent growth of Campylobacter. So I think that um, that has to be studied in a larger scale just to see if the in vitro applications are uh, actually uh, can be used in in large production systems. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, when you when you look at the success of the different strategies, um, what is the focus of industry right now? Do they have a favorite mitigation strategy, or are people kind of choosing based on their operation? I think it really will come down into uh, each company. How do they need to address it? I feel like um, maybe providing more incentives for growers to adopt one or the other would yeah. would be more beneficial. But um, honestly, I I think they choose based on what they see. It's word before, but a a overall package needs to be like given to them and. And explain to them, I think, uh, to to reduce this colonization. Yeah. So has there been any big breakthroughs recently that seem kind of exciting that either you've done in the lab in your research or that you've read about? I mean, is there anything to kind of keep an outlook for, watch on the horizon with either of these pathogens? <laughs> well, um, actually, I really got excited with some of the results we were observing in in the trials we had. Because we uh, added uh, some yeast cell walls into the diets, and after inoculation of the birds, maybe seven or eight days after that inoculation, we did observe a reduction of uh, probably two logarithms in Campylobacter colonization, which uh, it was not statistically significant in speaking about, but if you are able to reduce two logs in colonization in Campy, it can be translated to a massive reduction of uh, public uh, health cases. So yeah. uh, not only sustained for that first week after we inoculated the birds, so I think that likely if we uh, test, because uh, that is particular diet that we were testing had a higher yeast cell wall inclusion, and then we were doing like a step down dose as the birds grew. So I think that if we tried and, and studied like what would happen, keeping these uh, levels of this product at higher numbers, if it would sustain this reduction, I think that that would be interesting. And yeah. uh, in terms of uh, the acids, I've read some papers that uh, particularly using formic acid uh, has been successful before. Uh, unfortunately, the ones that we tried were not formic acid based. So we didn't see a, a great uh, reduction in, in Campylobacter colonization. Matter of fact, it was uh, similar levels as the birds that didn't have the acid in the water. Yeah. It's good to hear that some of these other strategies are um, providing other options because if we only have one or two options for relying on these control strategies, I think that can become bad long term. Right? I, I think that there's the, opportunities. Uh, a lot of research needs to be done in vaccines 
Uh, so far, vaccines haven't worked for Campylobacter, but yeah. they have worked for Salmonella. So uh, vaccines are always uh, a way to to control uh, the farm. Yeah. I think for Salmonella, and, and more research needs to be done for Campy to see if we come up with, with something similar. Yeah. Do you know why the vaccine strategies in Campylobacter have not been successful? Is it is it something about what's able to be targeted or some other mechanism that bacteria has that outsmarts our technology? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just like uh, the Campylobacter strains are different. And yeah. mm-hmm, the difference, difference you see in the organism. But uh, that is something that is exciting and provides great uh, opportunity for uh, research, I think, and yeah. nowadays with newer technologies that allow us to understand better the molecular, uh, like the bacteria at the molecular level, I think that uh, it's more, it's exciting. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite strain of uh, salmonella that you like to work with? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, we just, uh, I don't have a favorite one, but uh, we do like <laughs> not, not the acid acid resistant strains <laughs> yeah oh sure yeah yeah <laughs> sometimes um when you when you work with salmonella or other other pathogens long term people just have a favorite for maybe because it's so hardy against a certain intervention but that's yeah. good to ask right <laughs> <laughs> yes absolutely um are there any other things in this area that we've been talking about as far as transmission or mitigation strategies that we haven't touched on that you would like to make sure we do highlight? Uh, I think that the most important thing is just always be aware that uh, a minimum breach in terms of biosecurity can uh, put down all the effort. So it's just highlighting the importance of uh, keeping like uh, the whole like barrier high at all moments. Mm -hmm. So it's being constant about and I understand that in industry um, like growers have a lot of challenges and definitely it's hard to keep up but it's just like a, a thing where if you are not aware you can uh, introduce these pathogens so it's just a matter of uh, keeping everything in check I would say their cleaning their disinfections uh, their uh, added products into the water or the feeds and obviously, uh, if they required vaccinations in their operations, keeping all those to date. Yeah. Yeah, that's sage advice for sure, especially since you've worked um, in the, you know, the sales side and also now on the, the developmental or the R&D side. So it's good experience to have while you're working on <laughs> finishing PhD. Yes, definitely. Um, so we'll wrap up the the talk today by asking the three questions that we ask everybody. It's time for our famous three. Working with nature and not against it. Chickens fed AX3 Digest consume significantly less feed and water to produce one pound of meat. Successful flock performance is determined during the first 10 days post-placement. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that most improved in barn performance, bird health, and a drier litter. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Um, so the first question is, is, do you have a favorite poultry-related resource? 
do I have a favorite poetry related resource? I think that yes. um, I've used a lot a a book which describes the diseases of poultry, which that's the name of the book. Uh, so it's been a, a great resource for me to understand uh, pathogenesis of the organisms and yeah. uh, the mechanisms they use. So I think that's one of my favorite ones. Yeah. For the area that you're in, it's totally appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, the second question is, Is do you have a favorite non-poultry-related resource? Uh, I do. Not necessarily academically, but uh, just um, for wisdom. I just love reading the Bible. So, yeah, that's the one. And then if I want to read things for fun, I just go to Nerd Wallet and then see business things <laughs> like where to invest <laughs> what's coming up hey, and stuff those like are that. both those are both great resources <laughs> um the last question is especially since you've already been in the industry and now you're coming back for some further education what is your best advice for somebody to be successful in the poultry industry i think the poultry industry has like a particularity where it is, it seems like it's a big industry, but at the end of the day, it's very small. So mm -hmm. I think that everybody knows each other. So I think the best thing you could do is uh, show your your interest. Uh, when you go to, to meetings, meet people, ask them questions about what they do, network, and make those connections. Because even if you are in your first year of your degree and you see like, oh, I'm graduating until five years or four years from here, uh, people remember you when you interact with them. So I think that the best uh, way to do it is like making those connections and also just being genuine about it, uh, showing like that you really want to learn. And don't be afraid of asking questions because some, sometimes uh, we don't ask questions because we don't uh, feel like uh, we don't want to be seen like we don't know these basic things. So it's just a matter of uh, asking and, and people is always willing to help you. So. I think that that, yeah. that is one of the uh, key things that you need to do. Well, thank you so much for that advice and for talking to us today about issues related to food safety. Um, love talking to people about this because it's not my wheelhouse and so I always learn something. <laughs> yeah, happy to be here and I appreciate the invitation. <laughs> You're welcome. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.